0: It's Tuesday. You know what that means. It's time for the best and brightest moment of your week. It's time for that show you love and that show that you seek. It's time for Nonsense. 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 The show, the best damn show you know. The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Under 17, not admitted without
1: parent.
2: <laughs> la, la, la la la, wait till I give my money right. the drama, people suing me I'm on TV talking like it's just you and me I'm just saying how I feel, man I ain't one of the Cosby's, I ain't go to hell man I guess the money should have changed them. I guess I should have forgot where I came from la, 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 la. What you like, get my money right La, 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 la. And you can't tell me was you saying something? Uh-uh, you can't tell me nothing. You can't tell
0: me nothing. Uh-uh, you can't tell me nothing. Uh-uh, you can't tell me nothing. Uh-uh, tell me nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nonsense the Show episode 245, an episode I am tentatively titling What Happens in Vegas. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We got a great show lined up for you tonight. But before I tell you what it is, I'm going to go ahead and leave you with Kanye for another just a little while until the moment feels right. Then we'll dive in and I'll tell you what's on the agenda and we'll get this show fired up. You ready? I sure am. All right, Kanye, take it away.
2: Magic They say I talk with so much emphasis. Oh, they so sensitive. Don't ever fix your lips like collagen to say something where you're going to end up apologizing. Let me know if it's a problem then A'ight man, holla then la, 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 wait till I get my money right La, 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 then you can't tell me nothing right Excuse me, was you saying something? Uh-uh,
0: you can't tell me nothing
2: You can't tell me nothing Uh-uh, you can't tell me nothing
0: You can't tell me nothing. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's kick the tires and start the fires. Let's get this show underway. Um, For the second week in a row, I'm recording a daytime episode of Nonsense, the show. It's a little weird for me. Uh, A lot of distractions, a lot of weird stuff going on. I've had to shut all the blinds, close the curtains, make sure I can't see out because there's too many distracting events going on outside my studio. Phone calls coming in, text messages coming in, people wanting to visit business to attend to, you know, responsible daytime person stuff. But I'm not a responsible daytime person. I'm the minister of nonsense. I got a job to do, and I need to create more nonsensical entertainment for you, the loyal, luscious, beautiful listeners of Nonsense, the show. Thanks for being here. This is episode 45 of season two, which means we have seven episodes to go. After this one, there are just seven episodes left until we end Season 2 of Nonsense, the show. That's right, you will have the equivalent of one full year's worth of nonsense. 52 episodes, one for every week of the year. Then I'm going to take a little break, restore my creative juices, uh, give myself a breather, and then I'll come back strong for Season 3. Looks like Season 2 is going to end somewhere around Halloween, so I might do a little prep work here and try to end us out on a real strong Halloween-orientated note. But that's for future me. That's for future you. That's not a problem for today us. Today us, we have an episode to deal with called 245, What Happens in Vegas. Captain's Film Institute Film of the Week, entry number 32, The Hangover. I mean, 2009 was a great year for uh, for comedies, the Hangover's an all-time classic. We're going to talk all about it today. I'm going to give you a Myth and Monsters segment that was uh, attempted to get on, on last week's episode, just didn't fit in due to time constraints. Uh, you Micronations people will understand what that's all about. I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about some legendary serpents of the Peruvian jungle. Uh, yeah, this is one that gave me the willies a little bit, so I thought you guys would enjoy it. We're going to dive into the Legendary Figures segment, which is one of the greatest mysteries. In American aerial piracy. One of the greatest mysteries in the American airline system. We're going to talk about D.B. Cooper today. I'm going to tell you very briefly about a few things I've been watching, including All Elite Wrestling, Woodstock 99 documentary, and American Horror Story. We'll do a few ads. We'll talk about the captain's bounty. Um, if there's time, we'll talk about micro nations. It's going to be a real Real good time, I hope you guys are ready. I know I sure am, but before we get into it, let's go ahead and find some music. dun 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 da. This week on Nonsense, the show for the 245th, that's not true, season 2, episode 45, uh, for the legendary figures segment, I'm going to tell you all about a man by the name we think of D.B. Cooper. Let me go ahead and just get my, oh, no, oh, no, causing problems. Let me get my screen set here. Let me get myself situated. God, I used to be a professional. Oh, wait, no, I didn't. Uh, on Thanksgiving Eve, November 24th, 1971, a middle-aged man carrying a black attache case approached the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport. He identified himself only as Dan Cooper and used cash to purchase a $20 one-way ticket on Flight 305. Just a 30-minute trip north to Seattle. Cooper boarded the aircraft, a Boeing 727, took seat 18C and ordered a drink. A bourbon and soda, for those of you who care. Eyewitnesses described a man in his mid-40s wearing a business suit with a black tie and a white shirt. Flight 305, approximately one-third full, departed Portland on schedule at 2.50 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed a note to Florence Schaffner, the flight attendant situated nearest to him in a jump seat attached to the aft stair door. Schaffner, assuming the note contained a lonely businessman's phone number, dropped it unopened into her purse. Observing this and realizing that his plan could be foiled by this flight attendant, Cooper leaned toward her and whispered, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. The note was printed in neat all-capital letters with a felt-tip pen. Its exact wording is unknown because Cooper later reclaimed it. But Schaffner recalled that it mentioned the bomb and directed her to sit in the seat beside Cooper. Schaffner, of course, did as requested and then quietly asked to see the bomb. Cooper opened his briefcase long enough for her to glimpse eight red cylinders, four on top of four, attached to wires coated with red insulation and a large cylindrical battery. So, to any uh, lay person's eyes... That sure sounds like a bomb to me. I'm not a bomb expert. I don't know anything about bombs. I just know that if I saw that and someone said they had a bomb, I would believe them. After closing the briefcase, he stated his demands. $200,000 in, quote, negotiable American currency, four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck on standby in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. Schaffner conveyed Cooper's instructions to the pilots in the cockpit, and when she returned, Cooper was wearing dark sunglasses. The captain of the flight, a man by the name of William A. Scott, contacted Seattle-Tacoma Airport Air Traffic Control, which informed local and federal authorities. The 35 other passengers on the flight were told that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of, quote, a minor mechanical difficulty. Northwest Orient's President Donald Nyrop authorized payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with the hijackers' demands. The aircraft circled Puget Sound for approximately two hours to allow Seattle police and the FBI sufficient time to assemble the parachutes and ransom money, as well as to mobilize emergency personnel. Flight attendant Tina Mucklow recalled that Cooper appeared familiar with the local terrain, at one point remarking, looks like Tacoma down there, as the aircraft flew above it. He also correctly mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive at the time from Seattle-Tacoma Airport which was specialized knowledge that not every lay person would have. Schaffner described him as a calm, polite, and well-spoken man, not at all consistent with the stereotypes, enraged, hardened criminals, or take-me-to-Cuba political dissidents, popularly associated with air piracy at the time. Of course, now we don't call it air piracy, we typically call it terrorism or hijacking. He wasn't nervous, Muckalow told investigators. He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel, never nasty. He was thoughtful and calm. All the time. He ordered a second bourbon and soda, paid his drink tab, and attempted to give Muklau the change, and offered to request meals for the flight crew during a stop in Seattle. FBI agents assembled the ransom money from several Seattle-area banks, 10000 unmarked $20 bills, most with serial numbers beginning with the letter L, indicating issuance by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and most for the 1963A or 1969 series. And they made a microfilm photograph of each of them. Again, this is pre-digital cameras. So they had to take some time and photograph each and every one of these bills. Cooper rejected the military issue parachutes offered by McCord Air Force Base personnel, instead demanding civilian parachutes with manually operated cords. Seattle police obtained them from a local skydiving school. So again, one of these strange things where he seems to have some knowledge of of what this area looks like from the air, the the geography, where are the landmarks, where are things going. He seems to have some understanding of how the flight's operations will work and what words and what phrases need to be said to get attention. He even seems to know a little bit about parachutes and, and what his preferences are. Strange, unusual, odd. At 5.24 p.m., Cooper was informed that his demands had been met, and at 5.39, more than an hour after sunset... The aircraft landed at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Cooper instructed Scott to taxi the jet to an isolated, brightly lit section of the apron and close all window shades in the cabin to deter police snipers. Northwest Orient Seattle Operations Manager, a person by the name of Al Lee, approached the aircraft in street clothes to avoid the possibility that Cooper might mistake his airline uniform for that of a police officer. He delivered the cash-filled knapsack and parachutes to Mucklau via the aft stairs. Once the delivery was completed, Cooper allowed all passengers, Schaffner, and Senior Flight Attendant Alice Hancock to leave the plane safely. During refueling, Cooper outlined his flight plan to the cockpit crew, a southeast course uh, toward Mexico City at the minimum possible airspeed without stalling the aircraft, approximately 100 knots, which is about 115 miles per hour, at a maximum 10,000-foot altitude. He further specified that the landing gear remain deployed in the takeoff landing position. The wing flaps be lowered to 15 degrees, uh, a particular measurement and requirement that was specific to this aircraft only, and that the cabin remain unpressurized. So he was setting the scene for what was to come next. And again, it displays some relatively insider or advanced knowledge of what's going on on the airplane, what needs to be done, the mechanics, the, the, uh, you know, all of these things, smart people words. Um, First Officer William J. Radeczak informed Cooper that the aircraft's range was limited to approximately 1,000 miles under the specified flight configuration, which meant that a second refueling would be necessary before entering Mexico. Cooper and the crew discussed options and agreed that Reno, Nevada would be their best refueling stop. Cooper further directed that the aircraft take off with the rear exit door open and its staircase extended. Northwest home office objected on grounds that it was unsafe to take off with the aft staircase deployed. Cooper countered that it was indeed safe, but he would not argue the point. He would simply lower it once they were airborne. So again, he has this specialized knowledge of what is is safe in these these very unusual configurations. So either he's somebody in the industry or he's somebody who did plenty of research ahead of time. An FAA official requested a face-to-face meeting with Cooper aboard the aircraft, which was summarily denied. The refueling process was delayed because of a vapor lock in the fuel tanker's truck's uh, fuel tanker truck's pumping mechanism and so a second truck was brought in to complete refueling. So there's a lot of moving pieces to this situation and Cooper somehow is in control of all of it. He's not shaken when there's a delay in the pumping, which most people would be suspicious of. Well, they're clearly they're setting something up. There's something going on. No, no, no. Bring in a second truck, get it done and get me off the ground. <clears throat> At approximately 7.40 p.m., the Boeing 727 took off with only Cooper, Captain Scott, Flight Attendant Mucklow, First Officer Radeczak, and Flight Engineer Harold E. Anderson on board. Two F-106 fighter aircraft from McCord Air Force Base followed behind the airliner, one above it and one below, out of Cooper's view. After takeoff, Cooper told Mucklow to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the door closed. As she complied, Mucklow observed Cooper tying something, possibly the money bag, around his waist securely. At approximately 8 o'clock p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit, indicating that the aft air stair apparatus had been activated. God, the alliteration in this story. Radekzak offered assistance via the aircraft's intercom system, which Cooper refused. This was the last communication the crew had with him, and they soon noticed a subjective change of air pressure, indicating that the aft door was indeed open. At approximately 8.13 p.m., the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement, large enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to level flight. At approximately 10.15 p.m., Scott and rather landed the 727 with the aft air stair still deployed at Reno Airport as planned. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and Reno police surrounded the jet as it had not yet been determined with certainty that Cooper was no longer aboard. An armed search, though, quickly confirmed his absence. So essentially, this man executed a plan damn near flawlessly. He got his money, he didn't have to hurt anybody, and he made his escape somewhere along the route. But what of the investigation... What happened after the fact? Well, FBI agents recovered 66 unidentified latent fingerprints aboard the airliner. The agents also found Cooper's black clip-on tie, his tie clip, and two of the four parachutes requested, one of which had been opened with two shroud lines cut from the canopy, possibly to assist in tying the money bag to Cooper's body. Authorities interviewed eyewitnesses in Portland, Seattle, and Reno, and a series of composite sketches was developed. Local police and FBI agents immediately began questioning possible suspects. One of the first was an Oregon man with a minor police record named D.B. Cooper. He was contacted by Portland police on the off chance that the hijacker had used his real name or the same alias in a previous crime. He was quickly ruled out as a suspect, though, but a local reporter named James Long, rushing to meet an imminent deadline, confused the eliminated suspect's name with the pseudonym used by the hijacker, D.B. Cooper and Dan Cooper. They're close enough that it's an easy mistake to make, especially if you're careless and rushing to meet your deadline. A wire service reporter, by most accounts, uh, Joe Frazier of the AP, and others republished the error, followed by numerous other media sources, and due to this, D.B. Cooper became the most widely remembered pseudonym for this particular Sky Pirate. A precise search area was difficult to define, as even small differences in estimates of the aircraft's speed or the environmental conditions along the flight path which varied by location and altitude, changed Cooper's projected landing point considerably. An important variable was the length of time he remained in free fall before pulling his ripcord, if indeed he succeeded in opening a parachute at all. So in addition to the wide swath of land this airplane covered, even in the short window of time we know that, or we believe that D.B. Cooper jumped, um, there are so many variables as to where he ended up, how far he floated, how far he fell, how he could have landed. The terrain is rough and unforgiving. Uh, The wind speed, the altitude, how long he, he, he did his free fall. All of these things, which we can't possibly know for certain, would have aided in making this a very, very difficult search process. Neither of the two Air Force fighter pilots saw anything exit the airliner, either visually or on radar, nor did they see a parachute open. But at night, with extremely limited visibility and cloud cover obscuring obscuring any ground lighting below, an airborne, black-clad human figure could easily have gone undetected. Through extensive searches consisting of dozens of agencies, hundreds of personnel, and countless resources, very little useful evidence was found. It is speculated that the 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption could have obliterated any remaining physical clues, And so what you have, even without the volcanic eruption potentially eliminating evidence, you have a situation where it's damn near a perfect crime. Nobody injured, he got away with the money, and there really are no clues as to who he is, where he went, or why he did any of this. On February 10th, 1980, eight-year-old Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront town, or at a beachfront, rather, known as Tina Bar about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington, and 20 miles southwest of Ariel. He uncovered three packets of the ransom cash as he raked the sandy riverbank to build a campfire. The bills were dis- disintegrated but still bundled in rubber bands. FBI technicians uh, responded and confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the D.B. Cooper ransom. Two packets of $120 bills each and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order as when they were given to D.B. Cooper aboard that airplane. There are conflicting historical and geological explanations for how the bills got there and even when they are likely to have been deposited. Far from answering questions, the recovered money only serves to deepen the D.B. Cooper mystery. Between 1971 and 2016, when the case was officially suspended, the FBI processed over a thousand serious subjects, including assorted publicity seekers and deathbed confessors. The mystery of the DB, DB Cooper case has captured public imagination for decades and shows no signs of slowing now. Who was DB Who was DB Cooper? Where did DB God this is hard to say where did DB Cooper land if DB Cooper landed at all? And what did DB Cooper do with the stolen money? There were no missing persons reports in the time after the the hijacking, so it's suspected that whoever this person was went back to their regular life, as if nothing had happened. We may never have definitive answers to these questions, but we will always have one. But we will always have one of the greatest air piracy mysteries in American history. I leave it to you, loyal listeners, to come up to your own conclusions. What happened to D.B. Cooper? all right ladies and gentlemen that is our myth and mystery segment no correction that is our legendary figures segment for this week's episode of nonsense the show Um, we're gonna go ahead and put on just a little bit of tunage right now um listen to the baja man i'll be with you in a minute
3: Was nice the party was pumping and everybody having a ball bar. until the fellas started in calling and the girls respond to the call. Huh. I huh. out who let the dogs out
0: all right that's enough of the baha man <laughs> I just had to play that song uh, sort of as a, uh, just as a tribute to The Hangover because, come on, it's fantastic. Um, all right, let me get myself set here. Boom, 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 boom. All right, our next segment of the show is What Have I Been Watching? Um, this is a segment that's harder and harder to do every week. Um, I enjoy it when I get the opportunity to. It's when I watch things on television, on YouTube, on the internets, wherever, and then I refer them to you so that you and your busy lives don't have to sift through all of the billions and millions of options, and you can only watch the very best of things. Um, everybody knows my taste is impeccable, and therefore I have a few recommendations for you today. Um, I make no secret of the fact that I've been a pro wrestling fan for damn near 30 years now. Uh, My girlfriend Maggie calls it watching my stories, and I find that hilarious. Um, The last couple of weeks have been the most exciting, eventful, um, and and rewarding uh, in pro wrestling in, in more than 20 years. So if you were ever a wrestling fan, if you ever had any even slight interest in professional wrestling for its pageantry... It's improvisation. It's pure athleticism. um, All of the wild, wacky shit that goes on. I highly recommend you check out a program called All Elite Wrestling. Wednesday night on TNT, they have their main show called Dynamite. Friday night, they have a show called Rampage. Um, They're doing some really exciting stuff. They're doing pro wrestling, right? It's the finest variety show there is. You should definitely check it out. Um, if you were a fan in the 90s when it was The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin, Hulk Hogan and the NWO, all of these guys, D-Generation X, now is the time to jump back in. Don't check out WWE, though. Check out AEW. That's what will give you those nostalgic feelings. I feel like a 10-year-old kid again when I'm watching, so I just want to share that joy for anybody who, who might enjoy it as well. I also had an opportunity uh, to watch a documentary on HBO called Woodstock 99. Um, it's an interesting look into an event that I remember watching on MTV as a kid, but I didn't really quite have the historical context for. I didn't quite understand what was going on and why it was a big deal. Um, if you thought Firefest was bad, boy, oh, boy, you should check out Woodstock 99. It was sort of a perfect storm of what was going on in that time period, um, a perfect storm of the rebellious, sort of uh, anti-authoritary, angry you know, kind of cultural zeitgeist we were in. Um, Some guys decided they were going to plan a Woodstock event. They had done one in 94. It went great. It kind of captured the spirit of the original. And they said, well, let's do another one, but let's do it contemporary. So they got Metallica and Megadeth and Limp Bizkit and, you know, the Red Hot Chili Peppers and these bands that were kind of young and loud and out there and really tapping into the anti-authoritarianism of that era. And uh, it was a perfect storm of, of disasters, of capitalism doing what it does, of lack of preparation, of arrogance, of rebelliousness, of the MTV era getting way out of control. Um, it starts off interesting, it gets terrifying at certain points, and it closes out in a not entirely satisfactory, you know, uh, way as far as watching the attitudes of people as they look back and playing the blame game and things like that. But highly recommend you check out Woodstock 99 on HBO. It's a really cool documentary. Gave me a nice look at uh, a moment in time and captures a lot of, a lot of kind of the, 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 again, the, you know, the feelings and the attitudes of that era. Um, I would also like to just very quickly mention American Horror Story. They've just started their 10th season, I believe. It's a show that I look forward to this time of year every year. Leading up to Halloween, you get a little, uh, a little scariness going on. Um, this one feels kind of very Stephen King-ish. It's a guy that goes up to the northeast, to the coast with his family, to write. Um, ends up falling into a lot of weird and unexplained situations. There's vampires, there's drugs, there's ghouls, there's disbelieving cops. There's a lot of weird shit going on with the family. Very typical American horror story kind of things. If you're into it, check it out. Uh, Airing every Thursday night, I believe, on FX. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what I've been watching. Look at that. We get that done fucking quick. We get that done easy. Life is good. Um, Okay. Let me go ahead and set this up real quick. Um, We got a couple of ads. Okay, so this is, hang on. This is the part of the job that I hate. This is the part of the job that I hate. This is the part where I have to ask you, my fine friends, family, and listeners of Nonsense the Show for a little bit of money. If you enjoy Nonsense the Show, I really encourage you to support us via Patreon, patreon.com backslash nonsense the show. Get on there, throw us a couple dollars per episode. It goes a long way towards keeping the lights on, keeping this show show running, and making sure you get your weekly dose of podcast audio noise. Um, You know, hook a brother up. It's not easy putting together an hour-long show every week, and uh, especially when you're working two other jobs. So, uh, you know, just th- throw me a little something for the trouble, huh? What do you know, a greedy pirate? Okay, don't fucking be like that. It's not necessary. I'd also like to give a quick shout-out to the fellas down there at Paso Wineshine in Paso Robles, California. You guys are phenomenal supporting this show via free alcohol, keeping the spirit up, keeping the mood light. Thank you, Patrick and the boys at Paso Wineshine. Uh, I'd also like to announce a new sponsor this week. Um, every week I let you guys know that if you're interested in sponsoring Nonsense the Show, all you got to do is write me an email, beardandbones, gmail.com, beardandbones on the Instagram. Reach out. Let me know what you got. Let's, uh, let's come up with a deal. Um, this week we have a very special ad from a pretty, pretty big brand, actually. Um, thank you, Old Spice, for sponsoring Nonsense the Show. Kind of a big deal. They got a, bit, uh, a big celebrity endorsement for us. So uh, let me go ahead and just uh, throw it to the pre-recorded ad they sent me. Hi, I'm Jackie Moon. I want to tell it to you straight. Do you know that sweat is caused by millions of tiny sweat glands dropping a deuce? Don't smell like a turtle cage. (laughs) Thank you, Jackie Moon. And thank you, Old Spice. That might only be funny to me. I'm not sure. Um, All right. Every week we do a a moment on this show called The Schmoop Song. Uh, before this was just something I was doing for myself And now I have decided to hand this segment over to Maggie Every week Maggie's going to pick a song for y'all to listen to So thank you uh, Miss Maggie for this one This is uh, uh, one that's just its just going to make you feel good It's just going to make you happy And you know that's what I like about nonsense The show So I want to go ahead and offer you guys um, This week's Schmoop song is The Sound of Sunshine By Michael Franti and Spearhead uh, Enjoy the vibes uh, I'll see y'all in about three and a half minutes Nonsense, 245.
4: I wake up in the morning at six o'clock. They say there may be rain, but the sun is hot. I wish I had some time just to kill today. And I wish I had a down for every bill I got.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, is the Sound of Sunshine, this week's edition of the Shmoop Song. Thank you to my Maggie for that one. Oh, no, I just closed the music app. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Don't worry, I fixed it. Everything's fine, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, uh, one more piece of administrative business before we move on to the uh, scary-ass Peruvian serpents. Um, For the last several weeks, I have been uh, issuing a challenge to you the listeners of Nonsense This Show. If you bring more listeners to my show, I will give you money. Nobody took me up on it after, I don't know, six, seven, eight weeks. I don't know how long I've been offering it. Um, I have zero entries into the captain's bounty. And so as I said last week, the captain's bounty is officially ended. I have rescinded the bounty and it will be awarded to nobody. Um, what that means is, unfortunately, this attempt to gather more listeners for this show was a failure. It happens. you Try something new. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. That's the way these things go. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask all of you, my lovely uh, fans, friends, family and listeners, um, what would it take to get you to bring more people to this show? How do you think we can bring more listeners into this show? I've got a really dedicated base of like 25 to 30 of you. I would really like to boost those numbers up. I don't know how. I'm trying to figure it out. Trying new things. Um, so if you have any ideas, let me know. Beardandbonesgmail.com. Beard and Bones on the Instagram. You know how to get a hold of me. Uh, links are in, the, in the, uh, the description of this episode. Check it out and uh, shoot me some suggestions because I am at a loss. And that is one of the things that I am going to be spending a lot of time thinking about between now and season three of Nonsense the Show. So... Uh, but, 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 but that's right, it's time for us to move on to the myth and mystery segment of nonsense. Tonight, today, whenever you're listening to this, I'm going to tell you about the legendary giant serpents of Peru. Get ready for this because this is kind of wild. The Peruvian Amazon is home to many outlandish tales. Few are as compelling or culturally significant as that of the Yacumama and the Sachamama. Pardon my pronunciations here. I'm a gringo. That's how it goes. When the Spanish conquistadors ventured into this jungle interior, they believed in all kinds of strange and terrible things hidden in the dense vegetation. They weren't alone in their apprehension. The natives of the area told of a giant Amazonian serpent, a serpent that is said to reach 30 meters or nearly 100 feet in length. She slithers among the trees on solid earth or below the waters of winding rivers. She is called the Yakumama, the water mother, and she is not alone. What is the legend of the Yakumama? Well, I'm about to tell you. They say there is a quiet lake somewhere in the rainforest of mm, Yucayali, Peru. To any modern explorer who might wander there, it might seem like the perfect place for a bath or an afternoon nap. Hundreds of years ago, there was a fisherman from a tribe near the modern-day city of Pucallpa. As he often did, he journeyed by canoe deep into the jungle, following a little inlet off the river Yukayali to a hidden lake at the end. In those hidden lakes at the end of the tributaries, a good catch was almost a certainty. After some time, the fisherman came upon this quiet lake as the afternoon sun crept past the trees. He could tell from the surrounding vegetation that the place had never been disturbed by any human person. He was thrilled. The undisturbed lake was sure to be teeming with fish, which which he would bring back for his entire tribe to feast upon. He rode excitedly, but quietly toward the shore, looking for the best spot to cast his net. But suddenly, something stirred in the water. The fisherman looked up. A great head emerged from the center of the lake and hovered a meter above the water. It was the head of a giant serpent. But not just any serpent. The head alone was the size of the fisherman's body. She stared fixedly at him, swaying back and forth. The fisherman, panicking, threw himself to the shore without a thought for his boat and plunged into the forest. Looking back over his shoulder, he saw the great serpent moving toward him through the water. She is the Yakumama, the water mother, and she leaves none who disturb her waters alive. The fisherman knew he could not escape, and he prayed for salvation. In this moment, according to the legend, four tapirs fell from the sky into the water. The Yakumama was distracted just long enough for the fisherman to run as fast as he could into the jungle and make his escape. When he returned to his tribe, he told all what had happened. The fisherman had escaped, but the Yakumama had been disturbed from her lake of origin. And now, as a result of this disturbance... She may be seen in any river or any inlet of the Peruvian Amazon. And sightings, along with strange disappearances, persist to this very day. But as stated earlier, that's not the only legend of a giant serpent in the Peruvian Amazon. There is yet another. Some sources say it is even older than the Yakumama. The story of the Sachamama starts almost the same, though it features a local indigenous huntsman, instead of a fisherman. He travels deep into the jungle, searching for game for his tribe to eat. The weather changes, and it begins to rain and become dark, so the hunter lights a bonfire. In this moment, the earth shakes a moment, as if a small earthquake had passed. The hunter, feeling this, is quite unnerved, and elects to put out the bonfire. The next day... He continues, cutting through the bramble until his machete strikes a large ancient trunk of about 60 meters in length that blocks his path. At the base of the trunk stands a deer. It looks at the hunter and, strangely, began to walk toward him until suddenly disappearing into the base of the trunk. Suddenly, the hunter understands. The trunk is no tree. No obstruction made of wood and earth. No, no, no. The trunk is in fact the body of a giant serpent, and at the base, a giant gaping mouth attached to a head adorned with demonic eyes and horn-like ears. The hunter slowly backs away, realizing that he has evaded death by three strokes of luck. First, when his bonfire startled the serpent. Second, when he unknowingly cut it with a machete, but the serpent didn't realize. And third... "'when the deer gave away the gaping mouth of the beast "'and saved the huntsman from stumbling into it. "'As with the fisherman, "'the huntsman escapes to tell his village what he has seen, "'and the legend of the Sachamama spreads throughout the forest. "'It is known, or at least widely believed, "'that the Sachamama remains still for centuries at a time. "'It lulls hunters and animals into a trance "'and waits with its mouth open.' appearing to be nothing more than a jungle cave, and her body appearing as just the trunk of a giant tree. The skeletons of her victims pile around her as generations pass until something, or someone, startles her into movement. And so again, when you look back through folklore and mythology of ancient civilizations, there are lots and lots of stories of mysterious caves, where people go in and don't come out. Treacherous places where no human should dare to tread maybe just maybe the peruvians have figured out an answer to those mysteries but what is the true story what do we actually know and what can we prove about these two mythical serpents the legends of the sachamama and the yacumama are based on the prehispanic cosmovision mm, cosmovision cosmovision whatever of amazonian tribes their names mean Earth Mother and Water Mother, respectively, in the native language. These giant serpents of land and water have a powerful place in both traditional and modern Amazonian art and culture, and have been prevalent throughout every stage of Peru's recorded history. The Sachamama, for example, has a particularly interesting tale that comes from Loreto's Rubber Boom era. In the modern-day Peruvian rainforest, there are countless hotels, pal- um, hotels, places, tourist agencies, and restaurants named for the giant snakes, and there are even monuments built to them. The legend persists as strongly as ever. In the urban Pucallpa, it seems that everyone has either sighted or knows someone who has sighted a Yakumama. The truth? There was actually a prehistoric ancestor of the modern-day anaconda that grew up to 18 meters long. A quick Google search shows that the longest anaconda on modern record is about half that size. But is it possible that a prehistoric creature has survived to this very day, lurking in the Amazonian jungles, waiting with jaws agape for any foolhardy enough to stumble into their trap? Well, a quick Google search will show you plenty of pictures on the internet that would have you believe so. As always, I leave the final decision up to you. Da, 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 da. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the tale of the Peruvian serpents of the Amazon um, And now, let's see here, let me go ahead and just get myself a situated Because we have some things we need to do 43 minutes into the show, we're going to get close to the end It's going to be a little under an hour today, I hope that's okay with you guys uh, we just need the right song to start things off And I think if we're going to go ahead and do Captain's Film Institute film of the week number 32 Based in Las Vegas There's only one song that's appropriate We have to talk to the king Ladies and gentlemen, this is Elvis Presley With Viva Las Vegas I right, like, said gonna set
5: my soul Gonna set my soul on fire Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn So get those stakes up higher There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there They're all living, the devil may care And I'm just a devil with love to spare So viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas How I wish that there were more than 24 hours in the day Even if there were 40 more I wouldn't sleep a minute away Oh, there's blackjack and poker and a roulette wheel A fortune won and lost on every deal All you need is a strong heart and a nerve of steel Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas With your neon flashing and your one-armed bandits crashing All those hopes down the drain Las Vegas turning day into nighttime, turning night into daytime If you see it once, you'll never be the same again I'm gonna keep on the run, I'm gonna have me some fun If it cost me my very last dime If I wind up broke, will, I'll always remember that I had a swinging time I'm gonna give it everything I've got Lady, look, please let the dice stay hot Let me shoot a seven with every shot sign. Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas Viva Las Vegas Viva, Las
1: Vegas. Viva
0: Ladies and gentlemen, that is the king, Elvis Presley with Viva Las Vegas, leading us into Captain's Film Institute, entry number 32, the 2009 Todd Phillips hit one of the highest grossing. Uh, comedies, all rated comedies of all time uh, to this very day, one of the more rewatchable comedies in the history of ever, starring Bradley Cooper, Zach Galifianakis, Ed Helms, Justin Bartha, Rob Riggle, and a whole, uh, Heather Graham, uh, uh, and some more people, whole bunch of hilarious motherfuckers in this movie, let me go ahead and read you a, a quick synopsis of the plot, and then we'll dive on in and see what we got going on. Just two days before his marriage with a woman by the name of Tracy Garner, Doug Billings in the company of two friends, Phil Wenick and Stu Price, and Tracy's eccentric brother Alan, head out to party in Las Vegas, Nevada. Driving his father, uh, father-in-law's classic Mercedes, they rent a pricey villa at Caesars Palace and immediately head for the rooftop to begin their good time weekend. Three of them later wake up with an extreme hangover, unable to recollect exactly what happened with the villa in shambles. They find that they have a baby in the closet, a tiger in the bathroom. Stu has a missing tooth and a hooker for a bride and Doug, their groom is missing. Hilarious chaos results as the trio head out to retrace their steps, as well as try to locate Doug and bring him home in one piece before the wedding day. Um, Every week on the captain's film Institute, I try to pick a favorite scene, a favorite line and a favorite character. With a movie like The Hangover, that's very, very tough to do. Favorite scene is probably going to be... Oh, God. I mean, it's either going to be the rooftop wolf pack speech or it's going to be the police station taser demonstration. I'm not going to tell you more about those scenes. Go watch the movie if you haven't seen it. If you have seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, favorite line, uh, basically anything Alan says in the movie. It's, it's just... Alan is just a, a nonstop favorite line machine. Um, If I got to pick one, uh, probably his his Rooftop Wolfpack speech. I just love that speech. It cracks me up every time. But if there's one that I've used regularly since this movie came out, um, all the time I use some version of Thanks a Lot Bin Laden. I just love that line. It's fucking hilarious, and it's it works for everything. Favorite character, it's going to be Alan. It has to be Alan. Um, if it's not Alan, then it's definitely Mr. Chow, played by uh, none other than Ken Jeong, um, who I think this was his first major appearance, and he built... An incredible career off the back of it. Um, No effects or prosthetics were created for Stu's missing tooth. Ed Helms never had an adult incisor grow in. He lost his baby tooth and nothing grew in its place. Um, His fake incisor was taken out for parts of the filming where Stu's tooth is missing. So he just happened to be the right guy for the job and added that little piece of genius comedy uh, that runs throughout. Um, if you're into studying the background of scenes, you know, as you, as you rewatch movies, uh, you might catch when the cop car pulls up in front of Caesar's Palace, two actual Caesar's, employee, uh, Caesar's Palace employees are having an argument in the background regarding the filming of the movie and the, and the interruptions with their regular jobs. So, just a fun little Easter egg for you to look for. Um, Captain's Film Institute, one of the themes that we, well, the theme that I look for in every film that I bring to this is some, some evidence of improvisation. I love improvisation. I think it's one of the better skills any person can have, whether they're a performer or not. Um, Being able to improvise, think fast, speak fast, um, work on the fly, adapt to what's around you. Vital, vital life skills, especially in the fast paced world we live in. Ed Helms and Zach Galifianakis are two incredible improvisers. Um, In this movie, they each have a pretty memorable song Stu's Song by Ed Helms and uh, Three Best Friends, played uh, by, uh, or sung rather, by Alan. I'm just going to see if I have Stu's song. Oh, my God. Wait, it went away. There it is. Um, they uh, they were both improvised by the actors while filming. So when you watch those, just have a little bit extra respect. Um, I just did a, a quick search on uh, on uh, uh, Spotify for Stu's song. Let's see if... Here it is. This is Stu's song. It was my alarm clock for a while, actually.
5: <laughs> what do tigers dream of? When they take a little tiger snooze Do they dream of mauling zebras Or how Berry in her catwoman suit Don't you worry, you're pretty striped And we're gonna get you back to Tyson and your cozy tiger bed And then we're gonna find our best friend Doug And then we're gonna give him a best friend hug Doug! Dug, dug it, dug it, dug it, dug, dug it, dug it, dug, dog, dug. But if he's been murdered by crystal meth tweakers, well then we're shit out of luck.
0: <laughs> so obviously that's not the original version, but uh, it is a version, and it will do the job for our purposes today. Uh, <laughs> Oh, boy. Okay, Uh, let's see what else we got. Some more improvisation here in the movie. Zach Galifianakis improvised one of the best lines in the movie. Um, I didn't know they gave out rings at the Holocaust. The initial line had Alan making a sexually inappropriate comment about Stu's mom, but Zach thought up the new line for two reasons. He said he wanted to show that Alan was someone who knew almost nothing about the world, and uh, he also uh, thought that a successful uh, Holocaust joke would really establish that this film was going to be hilarious. If you can make a funny Holocaust joke, you've probably got some decent comedic chops. It's kind of the idea there. Uh, big, big cameo in this movie by none other than Mike Tyson himself. Iron Mike. He revealed that he appeared in the film solely for the purpose of funding his drug habit. That he was high on cocaine when he filmed his scenes and he later said that working on the film convinced him that it was time to change his lifestyle. He originally refused to appear in the film but he changed his mind when he found out that Todd Phillips directed a little movie which will be in the Captain's Film Institute down the road, called Old School, which Tyson liked very much. So um, Tyson famously got clean, got himself back together, really kind of changed his public image. And uh, this movie was sort of instrumental in in revitalizing his career. So big shout out to, to The Hangover for that. Uh, during filming in Las Vegas, one of the Mercedes that was used in, in the film, it was a very beat-up, distinctive-looking car, was stolen from the lot where the vehicles were being kept when they weren't being, uh, weren't being used. The next day, while production was filming driving sequences and traffic was being held up by the local police, one of the production people noticed that a very distinctive Mercedes was a part of the cars being held up in the traffic jam. They told the police on scene, the driver was arrested, and the car was recovered. So imagine you're driving a very distinctive car. Very distinctive damage on a very distinctive model of car that doesn't show up very often in Las Vegas. You get caught in a traffic jam because something's going on. You look up and all of a sudden the cops are swarming you because the car you stole was being used in that particular uh, traffic obstruction. <laughs> it's always fun when I do the research for these movies to see who um, were, were being considered as alternate casting options. Um, oh, Hello. Forgive me, don't mind me. I'm just going to go ahead and start hitting buttons while I'm recording. This is a professional broadcast sip of water for a highly professional broadcast of nonsense and show. We got, we're 53 minutes in. That's my first sip of water. It's been a pretty good show so far. Way to go, me. High five. Um, <laughs> I love looking at alternate casting because, especially when you get roles that become sort of iconic in these iconic films, and they're well-known for certain people playing them a certain way, it's always neat to consider what could have been. Now, imagine if Alan, played by Zach Galifianakis, was instead played by Jack Black or Jonah Hill or Jake Gyllenhaal. What the fuck? I mean, Jack Black, I think, would have killed it. I think Jonah Hill could have done a really interesting take. I don't know how Jake Gyllenhaal would have done with that. I know he's a good actor, but I don't really know his his comedic chops. Uh, The part of Phil was almost played by Paul Rudd. Josh Lucas, Vince Vaughn, Josh Hartnett, and Ethan Embry were also considered. Stu, of course, played by Ed Helms. Breckin Meyer, Will Ferrell, and Seth Rogen were all considered. And Jeremy Piven, Ari Gold from Entourage, turned it down. Uh, Heather Graham's role of Jade, uh, the stripper with a heart of gold, uh, she was almost played by Lindsay Lohan, who turned the part down thinking that the movie would be a total flop. wonder how she feels about that now. Um, one of the questions I always had while I was watching was, why do they have a chicken in the room? Where did the chicken come from? Why do you have a chicken in your hotel room? Well, while I was reading this, I found out why the chicken was there. The chicken was there because, theoretically, the boys figured they might have to feed the tiger at some point. You figure that out, huh? Um, And one of my favorite cameos in the film is a cameo in a lot of Todd Phillips movies is a a, a band out of L.A. I've never seen live, but I would love to someday. Um, It's a little band called The Dan Band. They do parody and... and, uh, and comedy covers of, of famous songs um, The version of Candy Shop Which is the song they sing in this film In, in the uh, the final wedding scene uh, That's on Spotify, not very good It's like a funk jam version of it It's not the same one So I'm going to go ahead and give you guys A quick taste of Total Eclipse of the Heart Done by the Dan Band Just uh, sit back and enjoy it Because uh, I just love these guys Google them Their performances are even funner to watch Than they are to listen to Funner is totally a word Shut up
3: Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit lonely and you're never coming around. Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit tired of listening to the sound of my tears Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit nervous that the best of all my years have gone by Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit terrified I see the fucking look in your eyes all the time
1: Now there's only
3: love in the dark
0: Ladies and gentlemen Is your very brief taste Of the Dan Band They don't have a lot Of recorded music out there But uh, what they have Is really good And you should check it out Alright ladies and gentlemen I'm so sorry to say But uh, I think that's it I think it's over That's the end of episode 245 Over? No yeah over Did you say over? That's what I said Nothing is over until oh,
3: we on. decide it
0: is. The shit again. Was
3: it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? That's not how it went. Hell no. That's
0: not how it went. Sherman, forget it, he's rolling.
3: <laughs> and it ain't over now.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Bluto. Uh, unfortunately it is over now. Uh sorry Lee, sorry Emily, we just ran out of time for the Micronations this week. Um, If you guys like the show, please let me know, beardandbonesgmail.com. If you have comments, suggestions, you want to hear a story, you want me to do a movie, you got a historical figure, a historical moment, uh, a ghost story, a legend, a tale, whatever you got, send it my way, beardandbonesgmail.com, beardandbones on the Instagram. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week for 246. Uh, We're on the road to finishing uh, season two. I love it. Nonsense the show. Talk to you next week. Love you. Bye.
3: I sh- I sh- I sh- Let's go. Up in the club with my homies, trying to get a little V.I., keep her down on the low key. She, she know i how it is. I started shorty, she was checking it for me. From the game, she was singing in my ear, you would think that she knew me. I decided to cheat. The conversation yes. got heavy The cow. Yeah. And forget about game, I'ma spit the truth. I what? won't stop till I get them in their birthday suits. Yeah. Yeah. So give me the rhythm and it'll be off with their clothes. Then they bend over to the, the front and touch your toes. I left the jag and I took the rolls. If they ain't cutting, then I put them on foot patrol. How you like me now? When my pinkies valued get over 300,000. Let's drink, you the one to please. Ludicrous fill cups like double D's. and urged once more when we leave them dead. We want a lady in the street, but a freak in a the bed. They say, Go, take that, rewind it back. Earth sure got the voice to make your booty go. Take that, rewind it back. Ludacris got the flow to make your booty go. Take that, rewind it back. Lil Jon got the beat to make your booty go.
1: Dang.